And sola fide is the theme of today's message. And the reason it's the theme of today's message is because it's the theme of the very place that we go to at the end of Romans 3 and the beginning of Romans chapter 4. And so, by way of review, without spending a lot of time on it, let me just read for you the, the great paragraph that precedes it. Verse 20 is the transitional uh, of chapter 3, Romans 3. Verse 20 is the transitional verse where Paul sums all up, up what he's been saying in Romans 1, 2, and 3 by saying, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But then, the paragraph begins with, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And you can just follow along on your outline if you want to. But with, and I won't really uh, explain as we go. We've done that for two weeks. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. And then get that last uh, phrase, because it really had so much to do with the 10 o'clock hour, the justice of God and uh, the fact that the atonement that Jesus Christ gave is right, true, and necessary, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And those rings, those words ring in my mind often because I just love the way it says, just and justifier, because he is just, he, it is right. It's righteousness and it's right. And he is the justifier. So he's just and justifier. Okay, so now we go to new material. I think the best way to deal with this is to read verses 27 through 31 together. Uh, you follow along as I read them, and then we'll pick them apart uh, verse by verse just to, to make sure we get the sense of the meaning. So in light of all of that, in light of that great paragraph, where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. That's a, kind of an interesting statement to make, maybe a bit surprising even, uh, because as you see, uh, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. It says, when we establish the law. Well, we'll explain that in just a moment, because there is an explanation. First of all, no boasting. Verse 27, why could we boast about something that we didn't do? How could we, you know, and uh, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, just to paraphrase it. He says, um, why, why would you 
Why, why would you glory in that which you have received? You know, I'll, I'll use a, a football illustration. Don't like to use sports illustration too much because I don't want you checking your phone for football scores. Okay, <laughs> so don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. But um, a football illustration. A, a receiver, what does he do? A receiver can run the greatest routes in the world. He can do the most wonderful things possible. Uh, he can just be magnificent. He can be wide open in the end zone. And if nobody throws him a pass, he's not really a receiver at all, is he? <laughs> he didn't receive anything, you know. And uh, that's a very flawed illustration, but it does kind of help us to, to see what faith is about, you know. We receive faith. God gives us faith, and then we have faith. Just like a receiver, once the football is thrown to him, it's caught, and now he really was a receiver, you know. I, I like to make fun in football games when you watch somebody drop a pass, and I'll say, you know, you're a receiver, not a dropper, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you know, there's no dropping in, in God's way. When God does it, it's, it's done, and it's good. And there's no boasting because it's not of ourselves. Now, law could be used in many different ways. And uh, we must always keep the context in view when Paul or any of the scriptures are talking about the law. And here in verse 27, he talks about a law of works. You know, where's boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works, the law of works, man's self-salvation, or a law of faith, which we could say means a principle of faith. And John Murray said it well, because John Murray, great, great theologian, uh, his commentary on, on the Romans, one of the best, one of the best. John Murray says, faith is self-renouncing, whereas works are self-congratulatory. Whoa, you know? Faith is self-renouncing but works are self-congratulatory. And this is relevant, as we'll see when we get to chapter four. Did Abraham boast or did he receive? Did Abraham boast or did he believe? Did Abraham have the right to boast in his great faith? Or was it God's choice of Abraham and promises to Abraham that made the difference? And it's significant that Paul's gonna use Abraham because he's writing to Jew and Gentile alike. And the one thing the Jews loved, still love, Father Abraham. Father Abraham, he's our father, you know. Well, many Jews, those who reject Christ, believed Abraham was saved by his own works, thereby giving Abraham cause to boast. And uh, they would then boast in Father Abraham. Now John the Baptist, um, not so much, you know, as the scribes and Pharisees came out to him, uh, many sinners uh, received John the Baptist gladly, were baptized by him, baptism of repentance, and uh, they would confess their sins, be baptized. The Pharisees, I notice, uh, were not being baptized. Instead, they came out to judge John. What right do you have to be baptizing? You told us you're not the Messiah. You told us that you're not Elijah. I don't know why Elijah would have the right to baptize, but anyway, that's what they said. So Messiah, Elijah, but so why do you have the right to baptize? Because God gave him the command. 
That's why. And he was to point the way to Messiah. He was. And as he talked to the Pharisees, he said, I'll just quote it to you from Matthew 3, 7 through 9. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Well, I'm sure they were real pleased. That, that's how you make friends and influence people. You know? <laughs> brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not say, in the Greek, do not even begin to say. Don't even think it in any way possible. Do not even begin to say, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, you're not going to find a translation that says, do not even begin to think. Okay, then. That's an over-translation. But it certainly does encapsulize the meaning. So, no boasting, not even about being Abraham's posterity. We're saved by faith. And, and how sad if we would say, look how great faith I have. You know, I conjured it up. I made it. I, I somehow willed myself to have this kind of faith. Well, that kind of boasting is not allowed and should never be a part of a true Christian. Now, verse 28 is faith alone or sola fide. We are justified. And I've, I've said over and over again that uh, just, um, justification means not guilty, but it really means a little bit more than that. I haven't emphasized it enough, I don't think, because it not only means not guilty, it also means declared righteous. So we need to see both aspects there of justification. It's forensic. God is saying, you're not guilty, but you are righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us, which we've said many times before. Verse 28, therefore we conclude the man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now this is interesting because Martin Luther translated the Bible into German and as he did that he did something interesting here that he took a lot of flack for and would, people were very angry at him. Scholars were very angry at him. How can you do that? The Roman church was very angry for him. Uh, doing this because he translated it it would sound like this therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone apart from the deeds of the law they said alone's not in there you're putting a word in there that doesn't belong well Martin Luther had an answer to that you know um, because you know it was needed. I think it was needed at the time to be unambiguous and to understand. You can see right there, sola fide, faith alone. You know, okay. And that, he put that alone in there. I guess in our English translations nowadays, because of the way we do things, maybe alone would have been put in italics. But in context, it certainly does deserve to be there. And Luther defended himself in adding a sola to it. Um, and he took a cue from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, sorry. And let me just read you what Luther said. If you're Papas, he loved to call Roman Catholics Papas, you know. That's not a compliment. <laughs> if your Papas make much useless fuss about the word sola, 
Tell him that Dr. Martin Luther will have it so. For I ask, are the Papists doctors? So am I. Are they learned? So am I. Are they preachers? So am I. Are they theologians? So am I. Therefore, he says, the word alone shall remain in my New Testament, and although all the papal donkeys, I doubt he said donkeys, but uh, that's what I had there. All the papal donkeys get furious about it. They shall not take it out. Well, the truth is there. It's faith alone. And we know that to be true. And of course, it's a, it's a historic Christian doctrine. It's a reformed doctrine. And there's one God and one way of salvation, plainly, so plainly said that I'm not going to be able to say much about it, verses 29 and 30. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And uh, rhetorical questions aren't always answered, but this one was, yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, that's the kind of thing that I like to, to study out. The circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. But there's one God and there's one way of salvation. So what would the difference be but between the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Maybe you don't think that way. I do think that way. So I went to my study and started working hard to see. I looked up the words in Greek, found out that... Uh, that uh, with by was ek. Ek can mean a lot of things. It can mean out of, and it can mean a lot of things. But uh, all, all um, prepositions in the Greek can mean a lot of things. So you have to really be careful. So that was ek. And then dia, which almost always means through, or something like that. So, okay, what's the difference by and through? And you know the conclusion that I, and then not just, myself alone, but I'd looked up many scholars to see what they would say, good scholars that I believe in and uh, believe they are good. I mean, same thing. Just different way of putting it. They're not different. It's not different. And so it's, it's good to look at something like that and say, wait a minute. It's God tell But he already told us that there's only one way. And so it's probably stylistic more than anything else for Paul to put it that way, uh, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So I think it's stylistic, and uh, we always need to be careful when we're dealing with prepositions. Prepositions can be tricky, and uh, we need to be cautious that we don't put too much weight in them, but we always should study them out. Prepositions often, Greek prepositions can mean four or five things in English. It, it's not unusual. So we need to see which one fits. Okay, so verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And, and Paul proves that he is a big believer in the Old Testament. In fact, humanly speaking, one of the reasons Paul uh, was ordained by God to um, write so much of the New Testament, especially the epistles, is because he was so learned in the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again, 
and maybe about the only one that quotes the Old Testament more is the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, which is almost all taken from the Old Testament. But we don't set aside the Old Testament. We don't set aside the law like that. The New Covenant does not destroy the Old. The New Covenant fulfills what was promised in the Old. The Old talks about a coming Messiah. The Old speaks of a time when it won't just be Israel, but the world that's coming to the knowledge of God. And so that's basically what's being said here. The law can be, mean so many things. We need to make sure that we're careful. One of the reasons people don't believe that the Ten Commandments are still valid for today is because they take a simplistic view of law. And when it says law, and then we see the law has been abolished in Christ, they say, well, then the Ten Commandments don't exist anymore either. Well, you know, try to commit adultery to the glory of God. Try to steal to the glory of God. Try, you know, try to lie to the glory of God. Bear false witness against your neighbor, you know, um, or any of the, or covet in your heart to the glory of God. Obviously, that's not possible. But um, to this extreme antinomian, uh, they don't have an answer to that. Uh, but uh, many Christians just say, well, the Sabbath doesn't count anymore either because that's Old Testament law. The thing to understand about the Sabbath, okay, the Sabbath isn't, um, and this is a little bit of a side, but I think it needs to be said from time to time because it doesn't come up that much. The thing about the Sabbath that's important is not the day. If it was the day that mattered, then it couldn't be changed to Sunday. Okay? So the holiness is not found in the day. The holiness is found in a one in seven principle. Okay? And in this new covenant age, uh, Sunday is the day that we gather for worship, but, um, and, the, and the Ten Commandments are still valid, but we do need to realize that the Sabbath, more than, than any of the other commandments, has things attached to it ceremonially and, and even civilly that belong to Israel. For instance, uh, if it didn't, many of you would have broken God's law today by coming to church because you got in your car and you drove a distance that was greater than the Old Testament distance. Well, that's done away with. That's ceremonial, okay? And um, things like that. Well, we find other things like that, too. But the principle remains that we owe God worship, and there is an appointed time to worship Him. That's what the fourth commandment is all about. And so it still exists. So we mustn't think that the Ten Commandments have been eradicated or even the fourth commandment eradicated, we owe God worship. And we owe God worship at a set time. That's why we meet together on the Lord's Day. So whenever we hear of law, we need to think, okay, is it the ceremonial law? Is it the civil law? Is it the Ten Commandments? Is it a principle like we saw in verse 27? Uh, the law could be the Torah, the Torah alone, the first five books of Moses are sometimes called the law. And uh, we find the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, Christ using that uh, threefold division himself. Um, you know, we need to understand law in its context. And um, the New Testament confirms what the Old Testament says. That's important to realize. Okay. Now, with that being said and done, we move on to Romans chapter 4. Remembering that there are no chapter divisions, but they help us. And this one helps because verses 1 through 5 uh, tell us about um, something that is helpful. 
that Abraham is an example of sola fide, faith alone. And then verses um, 6 through 8 tell us of another witness, David, an example of sola fide. So let's look there together. God has a way of righteousness. Abraham is an example of sola fide. Let's just read the first five verses, then I'll make a couple comments. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, isn't that interesting that he puts himself into that same category because he is Jewish. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Maybe your version says credited. That's a fine translation, and it means exactly that. Um, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But um, let, me, let me just use, um, yeah, let me just read it as it reads here. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted or credited as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted or credited for righteousness. So it really depends on your translation there, uh, what happens. Uh, to the Jews, as it says on your outline, Father Abraham was the prime example of a man who was justified by works. Justified by, that's what they believe, justified by works, you know. And the Mishnah says this, uh, we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given, for it is written, and then he quotes Genesis 26.5, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You know, well, that's kind of a phrase. And that, well, that's because there's something that comes before it, something that comes after it. So it's easy to take a little section and make it say something that it wasn't meant to say. But he was a godly man. He was a man that trusted God. But he wasn't a perfect man. And the book of Jubilees, about 100 B.C., says... For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So I guess he never lied and said that Sarah was his sister and not his wife, I, I guess. According to the book of Julius, the prayer of Manasseh concluded that Abraham never had need of repentance. Another Jewish word. Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance unto the righteous, unto Abraham. <laughs> okay, we got some problems here. <coughs> Excuse me. That Paul is dealing with. And uh, we have three amazing claims being made in just the little bit that I read to you. Abraham performed the, performed the whole law before it was written. He was perfect in all of his deeds, and he had no need of repentance. That's absolutely false, unless you believe that he was justified by faith and the work of Christ was imputed to him to forgive all of his sins and the righteousness of Christ was imputed to him uh, to make him righteous, just as we as Christians know to be true for ourselves. I don't think our Jewish friends were thinking that way. They were thinking he was perfect. They're thinking that uh, he earned his way to salvation. Now, that's not what the Old Testament says, and it's not what the New says 
either. So Paul says if Abraham was justified by works, he would have a reason to boast. Paul is like a lawyer here, like a lawyer of grace. He says, no, Abraham is not an example of perfection. Abraham's an example of faith. And that's the argument that he's making here in verses 1 and 2. That little word for that begins in verse 2, for Abraham was just, for if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But Paul couldn't leave it at that, but not before God. Who's going to stand before God and say, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself. Look, look what I've done for you while I was here on earth. You know, look how I obeyed you perfectly. I deserve to be in heaven because of the, the great things that I've done. Not before God. Not before God. No. And anybody that would talk that way, we'd have to wonder if they really know God at all anyway. Well, the key word in this chapter, all the way through, is a Greek word that you don't really need to know the Greek word, but it's logizomai. And logizomai has to do with uh, what we just talked about, with credit. The ESV, I think, to their credit, did something that I think was helpful to us that, that don't know Greek. Um, if you don't know Greek, one of the things you're going to find is that uh, this word logizomai uh, appears again and again and again um, in this chapter, 11 times in this chapter alone. Um, the King James Version um, does, translates it in different ways, but it really are, are correct in the way that it translates it every single time, but you might kind of miss the idea that it's the same Greek word. And the New King James um, did pretty much the same thing, um, although it, it did uh, uh, use the same word more than once. And I think uh, the ESV was trying to show us that this word means credit, or credits, or credited, you know, and, and did a good job doing it by using the same word over and over. The downside of that is that uh, we might not get the full meaning of, of what credit means. It can mean accounted, it, it can mean imputed, it can mean reckoned. All these things are true. And I put on your outline there um, all the places where it shows up. Logizomai, yeah. All the places where Logizomai shows up is uh, there 11 times in the chapter. In the Bideg, which is probably the authoritative Greek dictionary, um, takes this word logizomai, and it takes an entire column. And if you ever see the Bideg, it's a big book like that, okay? It's about that big, you know? So you take up a whole column to describe one word. It's like what happens in our English dictionaries. Sometimes you look up a word in the English dictionary, and you've got an extensive English dictionary, you'll see that sometimes it takes up a lot of room. And that's exactly the way this word works too. So we, we understand that. We can understand that as we go all the way through the passage. Now, why was Abraham righteous? Why was he righteous? It's real simple. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him, accounted to him, reckoned to him for righteousness. God declared him righteous because of faith. Abraham believed God. It's very simple, you know. The, the preposition 
in verse 3, ice here. It was credited to him for righteousness. You know, it's what we call the transaction. Not his works, not his circumcision. Uh, Paul's going to argue that in just a moment here. It was his faith, his trust, his reliance, not on himself, but on God. So it should be obvious to us that faith is not a work. That is one of the problems that people have. They turn faith into a work, and then they turn faith into a work that you are capable of conjuring up within yourself to make yourself believe really, really hard in something. And that's really not the idea of that. It's true. We can deceive ourselves into believing things that uh, are not true. We can deceive ourselves into believing things that are even ridiculous. We can deceive ourselves to believe, but when the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about concrete, inward, true reliance and trust, and that's given to us by God. Faith is given to us by God. It's not what you earn, and you can't earn it, okay? But we believe. It's right to call Christians believers, because there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't believe. That doesn't exist. Okay. We're believers. So what do you do? So what do you earn by works? I'm going to work my way to heaven with good works. And at the end of the day, my Roman Catholic belief tells me that um, I'll be, my good works will be on a teeter-totter with my bad works. My good works will outweigh my bad, which will be really, really good, and then we just have those bad works burned away a little bit, or it's not so good. Um, my bad works were a little heavier than my good works, but um, you know that's still okay because I can go to purgatory and get those burned off, and you know and then everything's all all good and right again. You know, you don't find that in the Bible. What? Do you earn by works? Verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, some of you can really understand that. You go to work every day, and you earn wages. And then at the end of the month, you're in debt. And the next month, you're further in debt. And the next month, you're further in debt. Well, there's something that's got to be done about that, okay? Otherwise, you're going to end up like the United States of America. <laughs> okay. And uh, the United States of America apparently can carry quite a bit of debt for a long time, but the chickens do come home to roost. Uh, you, my friend, the chickens will come home to roost a lot quicker, okay, if you run a deficit like that. You know. Well, no. In all honesty, it does mean just that. You fall deeper into debt. The harder you try to please God on your own, without going through Jesus Christ the Lord, without believing in the only Son of God, the only one who can provide salvation, the further you go trying to, to win the favor of God by your works, the further you make the wrath of God abide upon you. you go, Whoa, that doesn't seem fair. It's absolutely fair. It's absolutely just. He's the just and justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Believes in Jesus, that's the point. Wages are something that you earn. It's not grace. It's not grace. It, it would be very unfair of your employer to, to uh, you, you work hard, paycheck time comes, so that's don't feel like paying you. I don't think 
you worked hard enough. An agreement was made. He can fire you for not working hard enough, but he's got to pay you. You know, he's got to do that. That's only right. It's only just. And when you get a, you know, I, I give out a, a paycheck to, to some of our people from time to time, um, the janitors or the, or, or the guys that work on the lawn, the guy that works on the lawn. And oh, he's very, very great. They say, thank you, thank you. You know, the, it's, that's just the tradition that goes on every month is thank you, thank you, pastor, thank you. And I, I just accept it. But really, he earned it. It's his wages. We made an agreement. You do this much work and we'll pay you this much amount. And it's fair. He doesn't even have to say thank you. It's nice of him to do it. But he doesn't have to say thank you because, you know, it's what he earned. When your employer gives you a paycheck, that's right. And it's good, you know. In fact, it would be sinful for him to refuse to pay you. That'd be sinful. The Proverbs talk about the evil of withholding wages from those to whom it's due. And the Bible tells us the workman's worthy of his hire. And so it's good, and I think it show, it's fine to show appreciation to your employer. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But when it's your wages, it's, you earned it. What do you earn with God when you're working for your salvation? Instead of believing in Christ, you're working. You're in wrath, more wrath because you've spurned his only way of salvation. Okay? Salvation is not a reward for one's work. Salvation is a free gift from God by grace, by faith alone. It's God that justifies the ungodly. Verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. His faith is accredited. His faith is um, credited for righteousness. God takes us as we are, ungodly. He doesn't help us help ourselves. He doesn't clean us up first. He takes us as ungodly, forgives our sins, and then declares us righteous. That's what grace is all about. You know, it's a marvelous thing, and, and true Christianity is the only religion I believe that actually talks this way. True Christianity. Now, those that uh, believe in, in the sola fide, sola gratia, you know, true Christianity that relies on God alone, you know. And Hodge, another great theologian, makes an observation I never would have thought of, but he did a good job. He says, this phrase is in the singular, that, uh, you know, him who justifies the ungodly his faith is accounted for righteousness. And yeah, sure enough, in English it's singular, and in, in Greek it's singular. And then Hodge, who himself is a covenant theologian, we believe in covenant theology, but Hodge is a covenant theologian. He says, God doesn't justify communities. And I thought, that's really profound. God doesn't justify communities. You know, sometimes we covenant theologians are mistaken um, and sometimes they're misinterpreted. Okay. So what often happens is um, we, we have a situation where some would say that, um, you know, you come to faith in Christ, you and your children. 
Uh, the children need to come on their own, individually. Uh, nobody's saved because you came to Christ. That doesn't save your children. Okay? And so they're an extreme view of covenant theology, a wrong view that some have done. Say, well, you know, we baptized that baby. Okay, the, the best the ones that say that, the best ones say this, we baptized that baby in the hopes they'll come to faith in Christ one day. Okay, well, okay, that's not so bad. You know, it's a mistake, but not so bad. But we baptized that baby to make him a, or her a Christian. And then we teach them all their life that they're Christians. Why? Because you were baptized when you were a baby. Oh, okay. Bad mistake, bad mistake. And I'm glad to say that many of our Presbyterian, United Reformed Church brethren that do baptize babies are very, very strong to tell their congregation that you need to come to Christ. There's no such thing as second generation Christians. And of course, we as Baptists, very much believe that. You need to come to Christ. There's no such thing as second generation Christians. And that's why we baptize people on their confession of faith. Because if they never make a confession of faith, well, I, I'm gonna argue one more way. What good do your baptism do if you never come to faith in Christ? And what good did your baptism do, I don't believe, to help you come to faith in Christ. We're Baptists, that's what I'm trying to say. We're Baptists. Okay, and so Baptists can be covenant theologians. I have lived through a day, um, you live long enough, you get to do everything. <laughs> At least you get to see a lot of things happen because things go around in circles. I lived in a day in the 80s where I came to, to believe in the doctrines of grace, became covenant in my theology, a covenant theology, and uh, then found um, friends that, uh, you know, appreciated us to a, a level, but they'd just say, there's no such thing as a reformed Baptist. That's an oxymoron. I couldn't tell you how many times I heard that throughout the 80s. I'd be down at Westminster Seminary, and, and uh, that would be said, you know, and of course they had reformed Baptists in their midst. And sometimes their professors would say, there's no such thing as a Reformed Baptist. <laughs> okay. You don't hear that anymore. At least I haven't heard that in years, I'm glad to say. Because there is such a thing as a Reformed Baptist. There is such a thing as covenant theology that does not include the baptism of infants. So there you go. So th sometimes things get better instead of worse. You know, that one I think has gotten better to a great extent. And we find great... Um, find great allegiance with our conservative Presbyterian and conservative United Reformed brethren. That maybe we disagree with each other on baptism mode and subjects, but we can all agree together that it's faith in Jesus Christ that makes the difference. And that, like Hodge says, God doesn't justify communities. There you go. So I put three things there just to help you Understand, um, on point number six on your outline, the sole ground of our justification is the righteousness of God, and then faith alone is the sole means of justification, and then faith is distinct from its fruit. 
And this needs to be said because of everything else I've said here, that uh, faith is distinct from its fruit. And our confession says this. I put that on your outline. Faith, and when you see dot, 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 that means I left something out. I left it out on purpose because I wanted to make a point from what they're saying. Faith is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified. It is not dead faith, but works by love. So really what we're saying is that um, there's no such thing as dead faith. Faith that's alive is going to bear fruit. Some 20-fold, 40-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. You know, it's, the amount of fruit isn't what we're talking about. True faith will always bear fruit. And by bearing fruit, I mean it'll be shown as love to God and even love to Christians and even love to the lost. You know, it will show that. It's something that's going to be put within us when we have faith. And then just to conclude, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every truth should be established. Uh, Paul believed that. The Old Testament says that so many times. Uh, we will now see Abraham. Now we'll see David. And David's very quick here. And so let's just read it together. Uh, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then um, he quotes, Paul quotes, um, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And guess what word shows up there? In the Greek, yeah. But in the Old Testament, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, there it is again, that word that we've looked at, logizma. It's there in that particular psalm as it was translated into the Greek. So we see our sins are forgiven. They've been forgiven. They've been canceled. They've been removed from us legally. As far as the east is from the west, we're not guilty. Our sins are covered, concealed from God's divine justice, never to be brought up again, even at the judgment day. And I've known... Um, gospel preachers that were right about so many things, but they try to scare people because they think um, if we don't scare people properly, then they're not going to obey. You know? So if you don't do what's right, and you don't do what's good, and if you're not a really good witness for our Lord Jesus Christ, witnessing to everybody that you can, every chance that you get, you'll stand at the judgment day and you'll see the people you could have talked to uh, on the other side and their blood will be on your hands. Nope, no, no, not true. We should witness as much as we can, and that ought to flow from love to, to our fellow man, and love to Christians, love to God. It should flow from that. But at the judgment day, guess what? The lost are judged by books. Their deeds are written in books, and they're judged by that. Christians, their name's found in the book of life. And guess what we find out? The book of life was written before the foundation of the world. Ah, that's grace. That's mercy. That's God, the author of faith, saving us. Does not impute sin. 
God does not impute sin. Listen, do you still sin? I still sin. Do you still sin? Yeah. Yeah, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. <laughs> okay, so that's a sin, you know. Seriously, we still sin. We know the reality of that. We need to separate justification from sanctification. Um, I didn't deal with that at length, but I will. We need to see that justification is not sanctification because our, the Roman Catholics and even the Eastern Orthodox confuse justification and sanctification and, and make it all one package. It's one package as far as how it works through. But justification is God's declaration. It's what God says about us and makes us to be. And then sanctification is our growth in grace. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. They are not the same thing, but there is no such thing as sanctification without justification. No such thing. It would be impossible. So David found that God credits righteousness and forgives individuals, not by works, but by faith. So to God goes all the glory. Notice that's what it says in verse 7 and 8. You know, it's all about what God has done. In Christ, by faith, our sin is forgiven. In Christ, by faith, our sin is covered. The Lord will not impute or count against us our sin because it's been imputed to Christ for all his glory. Salvation's all of grace by faith. And no wonder Paul was accused of being an antinomian. I've often thought in my preaching ministry, I've got to preach so I sometimes sound like an antinomian, one that doesn't believe in the law. I've got to preach that way because the Bible talks that way. But every true Christian should want fervently to serve the Lord with all of his heart and grieve over their sin and repent of their sin. And Romans 7 will tell us that when we get there. And some will deny Romans 7, but no. Romans 7 is going to tell us the way that we feel as Christians. So may the Lord bless and may the Lord cause any that do not have faith in Christ to look to the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're talking about heady things. In some ways, they are relatively simple. In other ways, they're deep and unfathomable. For Lord, how can you remove our sin? How can you be just in doing that? Well, 10 o'clock, we heard it. We heard it again at the 11. And we saw it in the verse, you're the just and justifier. It's righteous and it's good and it's right. For those that believe in Jesus Christ to have their sins paid for by him and to have his righteousness imputed to us. It's right. It's the right thing. It's the true thing. It's the just thing. We thank you that salvation is all of grace. Father, it's all of grace through faith by Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the author of it all. To him be all the glory. In his name we pray, amen.